0: Hello and welcome to The Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And an extra special guest, GB News presenter, Anaya Folarin-Iman. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be discussing a turbulent week in British politics, from Beergate to the latest Brexit clashes. Leading pollster, Sir John Curtis, will join us to give his take on the local elections. And we'll ask whether Elon Musk will be allowing Donald Trump back onto Twitter. So at the beginning of this week, Labour leader Sakir Starmer pledged that he would resign if he is fined by Durham police over the so-called Gate incident. And now we're ending the week with an additional 50 fines issued by the Metropolitan Police uh, over COVID breaches in Downing Street and other government buildings, bringing the total number of fines to over 100 now. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. What's your reaction to this, Naya?
1: I mean, my first view is that all the people that were fined during the lockdown, why is there still not a bigger campaign to have them get rid of all of those fines? I mean, we Mm -hmm. had young people... Um, that, you know, threw a little party because they'd been locked down and been th- fined thousands of pounds. Tens of pounds well, in some cases. Exactly. Yeah. And so a lot of these, you know, £50 fines here and there that a lot of these politicians um, are getting and so on doesn't really seem particularly fair. So I would like to see all of those fines written off. But obviously on a broader point, I think when Boris Johnson, um, all the scandal kind of hit with him, I think there was a genuine kind of public outrage, this whole idea of like one rule for them and one rule for everybody else. And he was the one implementing it. But now it's gone way too far. It's just been a kind of political tool. And originally, the Tories seemed to be very in favour of kind of pushing for Keir Starmer um, to have this kind of similar backlash. But obviously, Mm. it's almost backfired on them now, Mm. because now people are saying, or maybe he might resign, you might have a bigger um, competitor that will actually take on Boris Johnson. So it just seems that lots of these politicians have been hoisted on their own petard. So
0: what have you made of it? I mean, are we just sick of party gate and beer gate and now curry gate as well? <laughs> <laughs>
2: All the gates. Yeah. How many more are there going to be? Well, it is, it is, a, the story is just worn itself out. I think, mm. I think people are starting to switch off from it. Uh, that's not to say that people have become just kind of cynical, but I think, there's just bigger issues at play. I mean, you know, the,
1: issues, yeah. you know,
2: we're going to talk about Brexit in a bit, or at least about the Northern Ireland situation. I mean, when real politics peeks back into the news agenda, you realise mm-hmm. how stupid a lot of this stuff is. I think Starmer really tripped himself up, just almost more so than Boris Johnson. I know people say, well, his crimes pale into com- insignificance compared to what Boris Johnson's been accused of. But he really did present himself as, in the words of Lisa Nandick, Mr Rules, yeah. which is a- incredibly unenticing prospect. But still, it's that's how he tried to define himself, because yeah. he has no politics to speak of. Yeah. All he has is this kind of performative sense of um, being morally upstanding mm-hmm. and being truthful, and he's tripped himself up, because it's not just about the allegations themselves, it's also, you know, the Labour Party clearly just made some shit up about this particular thing to try and make it look not as bad as it actually turned out to be. Yeah, exactly. So, it's been difficult for him, but um, no, I completely agree. We need to leave it behind, not least because I think actually the party gate beer gates and the other gates that we might be coming up have become a real barrier to having that reckoning with lockdown. I think the more yeah. we moralise about the COVID rules and about increasingly minor breaches of them, the more you burnish the idea that they were ever moral to begin with. And I think that's one Absolutely. of the things that's really stopping us from having that conversation about doing things like writing off all of those fines and, you know, making amends for what happened over the past two years.
0: And that seems to be one of the the things that annoys people, particularly about Starmer. It's almost that he was more enthusiastic about lockdown than even Boris. People talk about Boris as being almost like a hostage-like situation. Yeah,
1: Um, absolutely. I mean, I I completely agree with your point about we are avoiding having that very serious and real conversation um, about the impact of lockdown. And of course, when we talk about these other crises, cost of living crisis, energy crisis, they're not necessarily 100% linked to the lockdown, but undoubtedly that mm -hmm. they were... Un- exacerbated quite yeah. significantly, and these politicians are really getting away with having that kind of conversation and having to really reconcile with the impact of their decisions. I mean, we had you know, printing money, money, the furlough scheme, which was just funding you know everybody to the tunes of billions, and if not, you know, hundreds of billions, and now we are really feeling the impact of that. But those kinds of questions are just not seriously being asked.
0: Let's stick with kind of more serious matters. The rails over Northern Ireland have sort of stepped up a gear. Um, the UK government, we've learned, is considering basically tabling legislation to override the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, the Northern Ireland Protocol is the aspect of the Brexit deal that governs uh, Northern Ireland. The UK's Attorney General has given the green light to this. She says that uh, as things stand, the Northern Ireland Protocol is breaching the Good Friday Agreement. It's um, causing societal unrest in Northern Ireland. Tom, what have you made of, of, of this, especially these recent developments?
2: Well, I think it's important really. I mean, there's been lots of talking about how is this sabre rattling, is this Boris Johnson trying to get the kind of vote leave bandwagon back on the road because he's in such trouble on so many different other issues. But I think the government's serious about this because it does actually matter. Um this is the unfinished business of that very imperfect but necessary, I think, Brexit deal they came to last um before the last election. And it's just a completely unacceptable situation to the that but essentially the price of us leaving the European Union was part of UK territory being hived off mm. and being subject to rules that not only do we not have any control over, but the people of Northern Ireland don't have any control over either. Um, and again, just the obvious vindictiveness of which this protocol was written. I mean, I know it was the, there was a lot of mistakes that were made over the course of those negotiations, but... You know, given the fact that at the moment, and this is even with these grace periods continuing to go on, the thing isn't fully implemented yet. And yet 20% of the EU's external customs checks are all taking place in relation (laughs) to Northern Ireland. It's like 0.5% of the population of the customs territory, and yet all of that's taking place. And it's just, I think, as as a matter of principle as much as anything else. I mean, obviously the government are talking about the way in which it's affecting the peace process, the fact that the unionists do not want to enter Stormont, the DUP specifically, rather because of the fact that they're upset with the protocol. Um, I think the EU's intransigence has completely exploded the idea that they care about the peace process. This was always them about essentially protecting the single market, as they see it, but also about punishing Britain for yeah. daring to leave. And this is I think it's really important that they're, they're taking this kind of action. And I think the kind of response to it, I think, has just demonstrated what we've seen throughout the whole Brexit process, which is people, again, just willingly... Parroting the EU side rather than actually trying to look
0: at what the real issues at play are, which are very very serious. And no, you know, a lot of people will try and overcomplicate this issue. I mean, you know, bringing in single market rules, there'll be mm. all kinds of. Um, quite complex discussions about it but really it comes down to sovereignty doesn't it that's that's really the issue at stake here right
1: yeah absolutely i mean obviously i i will have to say that you know boris johnson i remember when he said it was oven ready and of course <laughs> it, you know it wasn't but we are where we are and we have to deal with that reality and if it's you know the situation is causing real tension and potential you mm. know physical violence and conflict you know in a part of the united kingdom then this very legalistic and technocratic mindset from the european union which is or well, you signed it and all of the consequences doesn't matter is frankly ridiculous and particularly in light of the global context that we're facing at the moment when we are having serious discussions about sovereignty and kind of what that means. And we want to have a, a, a sense of unity whatever that might look like in in the face of some of the kind of hostile uh, situations that we're facing across the globe and having you know the UK and the EU kind of fighting over this isn't particularly helpful and actually we want um to have a situation where um this can be resolved as quickly as possible so I think it is good um some of the noises that uh, Boris Johnson um and Liz Truss and so on are making in relation to potentially just throwing out you know, the whole thing, because it is causing more harm than good. But whether or not that will mean the European Union do what's necessary, again, seems quite unlikely.
0: I mean, it seems as if the EU are sort of throwing the toys out of the pram. Mm. I mean, one EU diplomat was quoted in The Guardian saying that, you know, any kind of interference with the Northern Ireland Protocol or the, you know, the UK trying to sort this out was giving sucker to Putin, essentially. I mean, it's just the reaction is just crazy, isn't it? Even the United States are uh, angry that yeah, I mean, they the want to resolve this issue.
2: They're flying in a bunch of people who are going <laughs> to yeah. be kind of dispatched to some <laughs> delegation to try and kind of sort this out because the fact that the US basically just take their lead from Dublin and Dublin have yeah. just thrown their lot in with Brussels on this issue and many more. Um, you no, know, it's it's ridiculous. And I think, you know, and obviously there's um, it's a tricky situation, but there's just mm. been no kind of... And I take the point, and as many people have made, that Boris Johnson did sign up to this. We've got to remember the context in which he signed up to it. And, mm-hmm. You know, this was, ru- this was ruined from the start, really, but because of um, Theresa May agreeing to that um, process of the talks, whereby you have to settle the border before you talk about trade, despite yeah. the fact trade is kind of how you settle the border question. Um, again, then in the, they really finally negotiated that deal in the context of the Surrender acts and no deal basically being taken off the table Um, it was a very difficult hand. And of course, they then had to sell it to the electorate. And of course, there was no appetite after that election for then reopening the whole thing. Again, people were exhausted. So it was very imperfect. It's very difficult. And you can understand why people just want this discussion to be over. But it is really important from a point Mm. of principle. Now, I know in relation to the UK government, sovereignty, Northern Ireland, very complicated history, to put it lightly. And there are some people who are almost kind of licking their lips, I think, because they think that this is the kind of, going to be some means through which a United Island would come about. But at the end of the day, the future of the North of Ireland has to be decided by people yeah, in the North of Ireland. It shouldn't, yeah. you know, you, if you get United Ireland off of the back of the fact that the EU decided to stick its oar in and then yeah. the Union just kind of collapsed <laughs> as a <laughs> result jurors. of that, <laughs> that's not exactly a positive yeah. national <laughs> mission, but, is it?
1: So. No, absolutely. And I do think, you know, this is, you mentioned this question about the, the United Island. I do think this is also kind of an opportunity to Put to the fore again these questions of what does the union actually mean? Mm. You know, what is it about the union that is worth defending? We've had these questions over the, you know, the SNP in Scotland and now Northern Ireland again. I, I hope that this kind of brings that momentum towards actually taking that question seriously.
0: At Spikes, we want you, our readers, listeners, and viewers, to have the freedom to go about your business online without the prying eyes of big tech watching over your shoulder. And with the UK government's online safety bill potentially handing even more power to internet companies, the internet is about to become even less free. But with ExpressVPN, you really can get your online activity back under your control. For instance, whenever I go online with ExpressVPN, my IP address is completely hidden and my identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. Plus, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of my internet data for protection from hackers and eavesdroppers. ExpressVPN is by far the best VPN I've tried. It's the VPN rated number one by Business Insider and countless other tech publications. And that's not all. With ExpressVPN, I can also access tons of incredible content, like TV shows and films from other countries that would otherwise be blocked, for instance, I can access the content on any country's version of Netflix, and that means I can watch thousands of films and TV shows that aren't normally available. So stop letting big tech and the government censor and track you. Take back control of your data and protect yourself today by visiting expressvpn.com spiked. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N spiked, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com spiked so next let's move on to the local elections and I spoke to leading pollster Sir John Curtis to find out what the results tell us about the state of British politics John Curtis thank you so much for being here on the spiked podcast first of all let's talk about the conservatives how badly did they do in these local elections
3: overall I would say roughly as bad as the opinion polls would have led you to anticipate. Um, That certainly means that the party is not in as much trouble as it was under John Major's leadership before 1997, Um, and that's always been the message of the opinion polls. So on the one hand, the the results of local elections confirm that the party uh, has now hit electorally choppy waters, it is behind Labour for the first time in this Parliament. it's not uncommon for governments to be behind the opposition uh, in the middle of a parliament um the reason why we're interested on in this occasion is because it's the first time it's happened since december 2019 and obviously it's happened not least in the wake of uh, in the wake of Partygate. Mm. there will have some bits of it that of the results that perhaps do give the conservatives some pause for thought um one is that, in general, their support did fall rather more heavily inwards they were trying to defend. Mm. Um, and if that's something that persists through to a general election, then that is something that can do quite a lot of damage. And that is redolent of what happened in local elections before 1997. The second, and obviously it's kind of part of the same story, is that the Conservatives in particular were losing ground in the south of England. And that was com- true as compared with last year, let alone with 2018. And then uh, thirdly, um, they were facing a particularly strong advance by the Liberal Democrats, again, not just simply compared with 2018, but also compared with 2021 in in the places where the Liberal Democrats were starting off in second place. And actually, I guess you might also want to add that, although it's still true that Um, the impact of Brexit on the electoral geography of party support is still very, very strong. And if you compare um, the results uh, this year with 2018, 2016, etc., there's still a very strong pattern of the Conservatives uh, doing better in leave areas than in Remain areas. If you do compare it with last year... Then you do find that beginning to be reversed so the Party is compared with last year um, uh, the advance is rather well, greater in leave areas the conservative decline is rather well, greater in leave areas that's consistent with the opinion polls that basically saying that you know the the conservative losses over the last two years indeed throughout the last two years the more volatile end of the leave current co- of the conservative coalition has been the leave end um, and uh, therefore that begins to to some degree have an effect on the extra geography. but so you were still getting this impression of the of the labour party not making progress in red wall areas uh failing to stop the tories getting control of newcastle underline which i think they were almost bound to do um so that so there wasn't any obvious progress in red wall areas in terms of the results because the comparison was 2018. If you look at the comparison with 2021, you know, underneath the surface, then you can see that there's been something reversed, but you know, it is it is with a capital S.
0: I mean, is it is it fair to sort of characterize it as saying the conservatives are losing their, their heartlands a little bit? And then perhaps oh,
3: they are in somewhat greater trouble in their heartlands, yes. Um so um yeah, uh, that seems to be uh, so well, I mean it's actually it's a mixture. They they are seemingly in trouble with both ends of their coalition. So they're seemingly in a degree of trouble where there are lots of Leave voters around. Hmm. And those places are not always necessarily part of traditional Tory hotland. Um, These are places that would have moved to the Tories in 2017, 2019. But at the same time, they were also losing ground uh, in places that geographically would be regarded as more traditional Conservative territory, like obviously, uh, you know, so I think actually, you know, if, you look at, if you look at the pattern of Tory losses of councils, um, they're virtually all south of Birmingham. And that did, that was uh, illustrative of a, of, a, of a wider picture. So you can see why some Conservative MPs are going, well, are we in danger of both losing the Red wall and of the traditional Tory heartland at the same time?
0: So, um, Labour had um, some good results in London, we can talk about that in, in a second, but first
3: no, no, of all... No no, 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 hang on, hang on, there's a oh. bit about London and that's just to do with the sequence of the results. Actually, you know, on Friday afternoon we suddenly learned that the Labour Party had lost Harrow in London, and that actually now on all the figures I've got, and I've also started to do the comparison to 2021, but I've not finished it yet, um, Labour did not do it any better in London than they were doing across the country as a whole. In fact, I think Labour's vote in London, when we get all results, will probably prove to be slightly down on where it was in 2018. Whereas outside of London and also outside the North of England, because it's in the North of England, Labour Party is still down as compared to 2018. Um, they probably gained a ground slightly. So in the end, yeah, sure. La- London is a Labour city. Yeah, it was a Labour city in 2018. Yes, Wandsworth and Westminster went, and those are the kind of two bastions that, hitherto, the party had never managed to get. But actually, lots of other places where the Labour party were in control, were were, in, were defending control and are still in control. Actually, their vote share went down.
0: And and in terms of um, the rest of the country, for Labour in particular, I mean. You know, you have said it's a bit of a mixed picture. Is there a, any route to power th- that could be emerging for the next general election for Labour?
3: The route to power to Labour Party has been fairly blindingly obvious for quite a long time. Um, now, the, the, but the point is, its route to power is a minority administration. Right. It's going to be very difficult for Labour to get an overall majority. They. Um, I mean, unless the electoral geography changes, and, you know, some certain amount of excitement has been generated by the fact that, you know, it has been pointed out that Labour made some relative ground and leave errors in, in, uh, as compared with 2021, and maybe if that would happen in the general election, that might make their chances of getting over a majority rather better. And yeah, there's a certain amount of truth in that. Um, but equally, we've got a boundary view coming, which certainly isn't going to do Labour any favours, essentially because of the decline, reduction in representation in Wales and that without a recovery in Scotland, of which there isn't any sign, I, no, no sign of the Labour Party closing the gap on the SNP, which is the crucial thing. They, they, they change places with Tories and to second place. In the absence of that, then the path to an overall majority is you, Labour have to be a very long way ahead and they have to be further ahead than they are at the moment in the opinion polls, and we are in mid-term. On the other hand, the Conservatives do need to win the next election. If they don't win the next election or come very, very close to it, they don't have any friends inside the House of Commons. Yeah. Ergo, very difficult to sustain a minority administration, even if they they have more seats than Labour. But the realpolitik that the Labour Party has to face is you're probably going to have to strike a deal. And both deals are probably pretty big. It's either do something about proportional representation to get the Liberal Democrats on board because the little Democrats ain't going to be messed around with a referendum on the alternative vote for a second time, or it's doing something on some kind of referendum for Scotland in which independence is one of the options on the ballot paper. And it's probably going to be very, very difficult to avoid one of those two choices. And you might have to make both of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, potentially. Well,
3: that's the route back to power, probably. It's actually doing deals. Mm. Um, and I think also the other price of all that would be um you would be talking about renegotiating the trade and cooperation agreement. So that that subject of Brexit, the Labour Party still doesn't want to talk about. Um I think, goes back on the agenda as well.
0: And do you think, is Brexit identification still playing a big role in our politics, even if politicians would rather not talk about it? I mean, yeah, we've, yeah, had, it, it, we've it, had elections recently where it's, it's been stronger than original party identifications, for instance. Well,
3: I mean, yeah, I mean, the proportion of people who, who identify strongly as remain or leave is still well above that for political parties. It's not quite as so strong as it was. Um, But you know, we're still, you know, we're we're still, I mean, this is the issue which with which people identify to the kinds of levels that we've not seen for parties since the 1960s. Um, now, as far as the relationship between um, vote and party choice is concerned, well, it follows from what we were saying earlier. That isn't as strong as it was in 2019. Basically, it's currently roughly. Where it was at at the time of the 2017 general election. So it's still stronger than it was before before Brexit. Mm. It's not as strong as it was in 2019. Um, But there's still, and the Labour Party has made some relative progress amongst Leave voters. And the Conservatives have certainly lost ground amongst Leave voters. So it's not all gone to Labour, some of it's wandered off to reform, uh, et cetera. But it's still there. I mean, the Party is still, you know, roughly twice as popular amongst Remain voters as it is amongst Leave voters. And the Conservative Party, although now much diminished amongst remain Leave voters, is at least as twice as popular amongst Leave voters, if not more popular than that, than it is amongst Remain voters. So, yeah, the, the, the division is there. And I think you can certainly anticipate that the Conservatives will be attempting to try to remobilize the leave vote between now and 2024. Um, and uh, you know the opposition parties have to think about think about a way of having to countermine that. Now of course against the backdrop of a cost of living crisis, it's etc., that might prove uh, more difficult for the Conservatives than it might otherwise be. But you know, it's still there. Um it's just yeah, it's not as it's not as strong as it was back back in, back in um I, to, I think I, the other way which it's changed, it is beginning to look as though the Liberal Democrats are now able to act as the party of protest, even in leave voting areas. Yeah. So there isn't actually any relationship at all between the you know, modest but discernible rise in Liberal Democrats' support and how Remain or Leave voting in area was. And of course, they did manage to gain control of Somerset. Um, well, it's Kingston pong hole. Um, so, you know, Shropshire North was a suggestion that maybe they could now begin to act as a party of protest, irrespective of people's Brexit, people's Brexit position, even though the party historically is very pro-EU. Um, and it made it going back to that world.
0: Finally, can we talk a bit about class? And there's been a quite famous sort of class realignment in uh british politics over the course of the last few general elections i mean how is that changing is that going into reverse is it stalling is boris potentially squandering his chance to carve out a working class coalition are the lib dems still the kind of middle class anti-tory party uh what what do you think is is going on
3: Um, to be honest i've not tracked this since 2019 so i'm not going to attempt to give you an answer when i haven't when i haven't looked at the evidence um you know,
0: impression,
3: will do. <laughs> given that the Remain Leave divide is not as strong as it was, I would not be surprised to discover that um, the Conservatives have lost rather more ground amongst C2Ds than they have amongst ABC ones. But uh, that will be something, something to check out. I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the decline in the relationship between class and vote. I mean, you know, it it starts with New Labour very much. That's that's a principal cause so it's not going to go all the way back to where it was in the in in, in, the, in the 60s and 70s um, so some of it is much longer term um, but um, maybe some of the additional twist that's been given to it by Brexit is some of that's been ameliorated but I mean if I remember rightly at a quick glance you're certainly still not looking at very much of uh, other class divided you know, which was roughly true in 2019. And that's my vague memory of the last time I looked at it, but it's not something I've been attempting to track in detail over time as opposed to the Brexit divide.
0: John Curtis, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Spiked is launching an internship programme. We're offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the world's best political magazine. You'll work with us for six months full-time in London, starting from July, and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audiovisual internship where you'll help us to produce our podcasts and videos like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked online dot com forward slash interns. Good luck. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, has hinted that Donald Trump could be allowed back onto the platform when he fully takes over. Musk said that the lifetime ban of Trump was immoral and flat out stupid. What have you made of this, Anaya?
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what happened to all of those who said, oh, you know, they can do what they want. It's, you know, the, the leaders of uh, Twitter and all these social media companies, it's their own platform. They it's can the make, free market. Exactly, they can make all of the rules. <laughs> they, they became libertarians, you know, in, in a moment. It was quite uh, brilliant. And, you know, in, in a sense, you know, that is true. And I do also agree with um, Elon Musk that a lifetime ban does seem to be a, an extreme step. I mean, he is the former president <laughs> of the United States. It just, that seems to be a massive fact that people just don't seem to He actually, was president
0: <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Exactly.
2: No, this,
1: is, this is quite an important um, figure to say the least and, and that was one of the primary ways in which he um, engaged with his audience and, and, and kind of spoke mm-hmm. to people and I do think that's important in an age where we do have the digital public sphere and social media plays an increasingly important role in how we kind of communicate about issues politically for better or for worse and now that he has been removed it is quite remarkable like you almost don't really know what he thinks on mm-hmm. any of these issues you have to take quite a lot of steps to actually find out what his opinion is on anything and I I think that's quite absurd um, for a former president. So I do yeah. agree with Elon Musk and it also will be his platform very soon. But it just shows all of the hypocrisy of all of those who said, oh, you just need to make another platform. You know, it's so easy, all of those kinds of things. And now they're outraged because the former president can potentially come back on Twitter. With
0: with <laughs> Trump, you now have to wait for him. He issues these sort of presidential, not not quite decrees, but memos almost yeah. where yeah. He'll, he'll boast about getting a hole-in-one or he'll say the radical left is destroying the US, yeah. but it's just—it's not as fun when you can't retweet them. No, not at all.
2: He's by some measures the greatest tweeter of all time, yeah. um, and one of the greatest comedians of the 21st century. But um, yes, no, it's—it is interesting as well because people need to remember because it's become ex- so accepted now that he was booted off, and it's this horrible yeah. idea that he might be let back on. You know, Sadiq Khan was in the US this week for some reason, and he, he was holding forth <laughs> about this. You know, it's really important that Donald Trump isn't let back off on Twitter. People forget what he was kicked off Twitter for. They, yeah. If you read the blog post that they put up explaining it, it was down to two tweets, if, if memory serves. One of them was talking about all of the millions of patriots who had voted for him, which they said that was him glorifying the people who had stormed the Capitol, which is a bit of a stretch. In There's a millions yeah. of people there. Well, didn't see that. And then the other one was him talking about how he wasn't going to attend the inauguration, which Twitter actually said was him potentially sending a message to his supporters that the inauguration was fair game to attack. Like these are the kind of mental gymnastics yeah. that they were trying to do. And it just speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, Twitter and Facebook and all the other platforms, they just came under enormous pressure from the corporate media, from the political class, from the um, all of the kind of powerful and influential sections of society to kick him off, and they basically obliged. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a ridiculous decision. Even Musk's predecessor, or at least the former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, has publicly said that he regrets doing this. Yeah, um, Because it was such a remarkable overstep for these big tech oligarchs to effectively insert themselves and assert themselves as the sort of referee of what's acceptable, not just in people shooting the shit on Twitter, but in how, as you were saying, Fraser, the sitting president communicates with the people. So, you know... uh, The idea of letting him back on should not be controversial. Kicking him off should be the controversial thing. And yet, you know, this is the world we live in, unfortunately.
0: Obviously, you know, we've had the sort of typical reaction. You've mentioned Sadiq Khan. The EU is not happy um, about this. Uh, Guy Ferofstat of the European Parliament, who will be familiar to many from the Brexit talks, said that this is a dystopian move, potentially, and that, thank God, the European Union is stepping in to regulate social media and what you can and can't say.
1: I mean, it just tells you how much they fear democracy, how much they fear free speech, that the idea of just having you know, a platform where people can a- engage with different ideas and have, you know, people that they disagree with actually express their ideas. Mm. They assume that everyone's going to become, you know, a fanatical rioter that's going to kind of bring down you know the American state. I mean, it's just, it's just frankly absurd. And we know what happened during the pandemic when you had increasing uh, big tech regulation mm. of how people exchanged ideas, whether that was, you know, the so-called lablick theory, or even, you know, David Icke kicked it off. It didn't get rid of those ideas. It yeah. pushed them underground. And all of those kind of typical free speech arguments. And it actually just made people more polarised and more resentful that they couldn't actually express themselves freely. So it just seems to be, you know, a massive uh, f- for them that they're just frustrated that they're not going to have the ability to be able to uh, determine what people can and can't say or what people can and can't listen to.
0: And so on briefly, just on the kind of government response, we've got the Online Safety Bill in the UK, we've got the Digital Services Act mm. in, the, in the EU, as well as other various national laws in, in mm. Europe. I mean... Elon Musk is not going to save free speech no matter what, mm. you know, no matter how passionate he is about it.
2: Yeah, no, of course, he's going to come up against those legal barriers, as you were saying. And this is one of the really difficult things is because of the fact that, as you say, whatever he can particularly decide, he's going to come up against potentially if the online safety bill passes, you know, Ofcom essentially regulating platforms, mm. being able to uh, issue really punishing fines. I think, you know, it's a, uh, like a 5%. Um, of their kind of global takings, essentially, if they don't uphold certain standards. Um, obviously, legal but harmful is the yeah. quite Orwellian terrifying sort of phrase which is um, being bandied about in this particular space. And I think it just demonstrates that this is a really complicated issue. Um, and the problem is, is that it's multifaceted. Yes, in to some extent, regrettably, the state of free speech in large parts of Digital Public Square does rely on, essentially, the views and the decisions made by a very small group of very rich people but by the same token it's also Im- influenced by um, governments who are if anything concerned that these big tech oligarchs aren't going far enough in yeah. terms mm-hmm. of censoring the internet they felt like that even before musk was taking over they felt like that about yeah. jack dorsey they felt like that about yeah. mark zuckerberg and so it just shows that this is a this is an argument that you have to have out with in society and the culture more broadly it's not to say the state has no role in relation to the internet or anything like that but if you're going to win an argument for um, a situation which is freer um which is genuinely a proper democratic public sphere, then mm. it's not just about again shuffling the deck chairs in the c suite um and it's certainly not about backing these very terrifying laws that these governments are pushing through now.
1: You know, I, I think that's a really important point about, you know, that there's no silver bullet when it comes to mm. um the problem of free speech in society. And in some senses, I kind of understand those that critique Elon Musk, Just as I don't want a, you know, a CEO lecturing me about Black Lives Matter and trans issues. I also yeah. is it really helpful to have one that just wants to own the libs as well. I still think <laughs> it's a kind of you know politicized, um platform in that sense. And actually we have to have that argument out, you know, in the public sphere and win the case for free speech and having a culture of freedom within wider society, and that's within education within the universities, Mm. within the institutions across society, not just social media.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.